Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. And I walked in the door and I remember immediately opening up and telling her what had happened. And she was like, oh, honey, like when you get drunk, like that happens. And I was like, oh, okay. So I think immediately because of that experience, I just thought, okay, if I choose to drink, if I do this, then this will happen. That was like my first person that I had told. And that was the first response. So I ran upstairs, saw these hickeys on my neck and I took my curling iron and I just burnt the out of my neck so that I could tell my mom that I was curling my hair and had burnt my neck. Essentially, I'm bad at this point. I've waited my whole life to, you know, lose my virginity to my returned missionary. And Mm -hmm. now it's been taken. What's the point? I ended up telling her and instead of her like embracing me and loving me, she, it basically made her sick. She didn't speak to me for like three days. And her first thing that she said was like, you need to go and tell the bishop. Like I wasn't sinning. And she's like, well, you chose to break the word of wisdom, which led to this. The bishop, his first counselor, second counselor, and then his secretary was there. And remember, I'm in a tiny little Mormon town. So all of these men are men that I've known my whole life. Yeah. And now I'm sitting in front of them. Telling them this horrific story. Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions or organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. As always, if you're only listening and you want to see our faces, head on over to our YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness, where you can like, subscribe, join in on the conversation, become an advocate for these people who are coming on and bravely sharing their stories. So today's guest, she reached out to me. She has a story about mainstream Mormonism. It's something that we've talked about quite a bit, honestly, but this is the first time we're able to put a story to the examples that I've been giving throughout our time here on C2C. So today we are going to be focusing on the victim blaming and shaming within purity culture, how they actively treat people. And of course, it depends on the bishop, but they usually make these victims repent for things that had happened to them against their will. And it's just really problematic. We're going to be diving into the whole purity culture as far as being forced or coerced to kind of get married a little bit too young to avoid, quote, sinning and all the stuff that comes along with being a Mormon within the social structure of the church and of those around you. So thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Yes, I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. And when we were talking on the phone, I was like, oh my gosh, our stories are so parallel and similar. I just found myself being like, yeah, me too. Yeah, that happened to me. Yeah, what? (laughs) It's like, there's so much to talk about, especially because we haven't done mainstream Mormonism in a long time. 
probably like eight months or so. And so it's going to be fun for me to kind of really, really 100% truly relate to your story and just kind of like spitball off of each other. So it'll be great. Yes. Can't wait for that. I love sharing our stories with each other because it just is so validating. It's so nice to be able to be like, oh my God, that happened to me too. So <laughs> yes, yeah, so excited for our combo. Yeah. And you were actually recommended by your sister-in-law. She slid into my DMs and she was like, you have to talk to her. I was like, yes, let's go. <laughs> so I love it when you guys make recommendations. It's really awesome because Chris, you just posted a video on Instagram talking about your story. And so that's also really helpful for us to be like, okay, this is kind of what she wants to talk about and what she wants to get out in the open. So send us your recommendation, guys. It's always really helpful. <laughs> So today, I did really want to focus on, besides what we talked about earlier, how the society of Mormonism can really affect you mentally. Because from the outside, when most people think of Mormons, they're like, oh, those guys, psh, harmless. They're like walking around in their suits and ties, and they're all like clean shaven, and the women are just so happy and perfect and like cute and Yes, in some ways, but also there is some darkness lurking underneath. We know because we've been in it. There's a lot of emotional turmoil and psychological things that go on under the surface that most people don't realize is so harmful. And I'm saying this as someone who didn't realize it was harmful when I was in it until I left and was able to unpack and look back and be like, oh my gosh, that was not okay. And I should not have been suffering like that as a child or a teenager or whatever age. And so we're really going to dive into the psychology of that and hope that people can really resonate throughout all different religions, of course. But also if you're active LDS watching this, instead of immediately just saying you're wrong, just listen with an open mind and recognize that it's okay if some things are not as great as you think that they are. It's okay to have a nuanced approach to your religion. What do you think about that so far? <laughs> Just that one sentence of you saying, listen with an open mind, it kind of made me a little emotional because growing up, you're kind of taught to not have an open mind about anything else that's outside of the religion. And so it kind of demonizes anything outside of anything that you're taught inside of your home or inside of the religion. And so you just saying that was like an emotional grounding as in like, I wish that somebody would have gave me the permission or said, it is okay. It is okay to think outside of the box and actually try and learn for yourself. And then like, how do you feel? Mm -hmm. And so I just loved that you started the podcast with that because that's something that I think I really yearned for when I was growing up. Yeah. And that's a really good point too, that we're not only taught to just believe whatever the church is telling us. They say personal revelation as far as praying get your answers. But if your answers don't match up with the ones they're giving you, they're like, nope, go pray again. <laughs> Try <laughs> it again. Was wrong. You did it wrong. <laughs> yeah. And so they actively punish you for searching, pondering, and praying outside of the church resources. And we know this. They've just they've stood up in general conference in the past two years. And they were like, actually, if you have doubts, the best thing to do is to pray. Don't research. Like they literally said, don't research. And we're like, wait mm -hmm. a second. That's not the answer. So you really have to take a look at that for what they're truly saying to you and not just, oh, they just want me to have a close relationship with God. No, they don't want you to find what's out there all of those negative things about the past and the church history. I mean, we could go on and on, but that's not why we're here. 
So anyway, <laughs> I want to talk about your story because I also want to paint this picture of how you grew up in a small Mormon town, very similar to me, where the society was very much wrapped up in Mormonism. So if you could kind of paint us a picture of what that was like for you. Yeah. Gosh, this question is so funny sometimes because me experiencing my story, I'm like, God, it's so complex. There's so many like little tiny details, but to just paint a cute little picture to start, I grew up in a tiny little Mormon town. And when I say tiny, there was like 1200 people. So it was everyone knew everybody. I mean, you'd probably known the same people since you were born or since you, you know, were came to this town. I was actually born in the town, we moved away for a little bit and then we came back. My mother actually had grown up there. So that was her hometown. And so, you know, she had kind of grown up with the exact same, the exact same way that I had. And, um, we moved there when I was 10 years old. So fifth grade. Um, and yeah, graduated there at 18, but that was really, what's really interesting to me. I think about thinking about the story in particular is that, um, there's no separation of like church and school and, you know, any other activity. They're just all combined. They're all one mm -hmm. because your seminary teacher could also be your softball coach and your, you know, English teacher is also your Sunday school teacher. And so there's never, there's never that like neutrality. It's just always church, no matter what. And mm -hmm. so when you're, even when you're at school, you're kind of still being, you know, taught and judged like you're, you know, on the religion standards. And so anyway, this just reminded me of a, we're going to talk about the dichotomous thinking a lot in this episode, like black and white thinking, the all or nothing, the good or bad. There's going to be lots of stories like that. And I think that this, this story kind of is that thinking is that when I was a senior, me and a couple other senior, um, senior classmates decided to skip seminary and we just went and like got a subway sandwich up at the gas station and just essentially skipped a 45 minute you know religion class and we came back and one of the boys had been seen coming into the school and so he was called into the principal's office and was told that he could no longer it was our homecoming night he could no longer play in the homecoming game which is a huge what? deal i mean as a senior right like you want to play in your homecoming game and he was told that he couldn't and he you know saw us during next period and was like oh my gosh i can't play in this senior homecoming game because he saw me walk into class and i felt so awful that he was getting punished that I went in and I was like, listen, I was a part of that group. And he was like, you know, thanks so much for your honesty, but also you are going to not be able to play in your homecoming game, which was such Jeez. a bummer. And I, there was so many feelings of feeling bad for this, right? It was feeling bad for, you know, getting in trouble also for my team because I was a libero in volleyball, which was the passer. Like I was always switched in to be able to pass for our team. And I was like, well, that's going to be a major bummer to tell my coach that I can't play. Um, feeling scared because my mother was going to hear about this. And also they had alerted the seminary teacher or the seminary teacher had alerted. So it was just like this intermingling of everyone knowing within five minutes and everyone being punished. Um, and that, as I was thinking back on this, you know, dichotomous thinking of, you know, good and bad and right and wrong and being punished for like these seamless, tiny little things, um, this story felt relevant um, to share because truly 
seminary is like is a religious class and in a lot of states people go like before school right it's not associated with the school time but i think because in my tiny little town it was a class that was almost like a recommended like you had to take this class because we were all lds like what were they going to do like give it as a option absolutely not so we were all you know having to take this class and yeah, to just skip it one time. And my God, we were listening. We were hearing religion on a daily basis. And it was like 45 minutes. That's it. And we can't play in our homecoming game. So anyways, that's just one one of the stories that feels very like out there and kind of punishable for something that just seems so minute. We had the same thing when I was in Utah because I grew up in a very small town as well in Utah. And it was just part of school. <laughs> like you just it was not in the school because I think legally it had to be a separate building, but you would just walk outside, walk right into the other building. And when I moved to Oregon my senior year, um my mom was like, "Are you going to go to seminary?" and I'm like, "5am? I don't think so." <laughs> I was like, "Sorry, mom." And luckily she was fine with that. There would have been like four people in the class if I would have went cuz there was not very many Mormons. <laughs> yeah. But I remember this is um one of my I'm sorry for what I said when I was in a cult things, but I remember thinking when people would skip seminary or they would not even add it to their class schedule, I was like, oh, that's really sad. <laughs> I was like so judgmental for these poor people. There and I thought they were poor people. They were not poor people. They just didn't want to do church during school hours, which I get. I pretty much slept through my seminary classes anyway because I was so tired with all the other extracurriculars that I was doing with dance and everything. But it was just so interesting switching cultures. And I know a lot of people are probably going to be like, well, Mormonism is not like that everywhere. And this is what we're trying to show, though, is when there is a population that is primarily Mormon or any type of religion, you're going to get some problematic things going on because it's so insulated and you don't give people choices. You just kind of force them into this box. And so we are talking about what happens when you have a whole society that ultimately agrees on one religion and shames people for not being a part of it. So anyway, I just had to put that disclaimer out there. So there was something else that we wanted to talk about, which is even just the shaming within being in the cool kids club, which is Mormonism, within your town, there's still hierarchy within that. And so you had mentioned to me before mm -hmm. that even your family was kind of pushed out of not being able to interact with other LDS families. Yes. Um, I don't know if this happened in your town, but it's definitely like a last name thing, oh, right? Yes. Like if you have the name <laughs> Kimball, yes. it's like you better know those people are holy. <laughs> um, and it was it was the same. I mean, and I <clears throat> I came from at least thinking of between kindergarten and fifth grade. We had lived in a in Colorado, which is a little bit more like liberal and open. And so I think that I came into this town a little bit more, like I think I mentioned to you, like I was a performer, like I was very like theatrical. I had been performing on stages and I stood out and not in like a fun way. It was a she's weird type of person because I was just very like open and I don't even know how to describe. I'm still probably the exact same way as I was then. Um, but we came into this town 
me, of course, I was a child, so I didn't know the full details, but my parents had just gone through something pretty big in their lives. My father was um, a former police officer who had lost his job, and there was another police officer in the town who knew why. And so it was very widespread as to why our family was moving back to town and kind of like what had gone on. Of course, as a 10-year-old, you're kind of oblivious to the bigger things and more so just very aware of the way that you're being treated. So like I wasn't really allowed to go to a bunch of different sleepovers, um, not because my mom wouldn't let me, but because I wasn't allowed at the sleepovers. Um, I also wasn't allowed to play with certain kids. And listen, this is a 1,200 people town. Like yeah. it's not like there's thousands and thousands of kids to choose from. There's like 40 people in my mm. grade. So when I'm not allowed to play with 12 of them, I mean, it kind of limits it limits your friend group. Um, and when you're that age, you don't understand necessarily why you just start looking at yourself, right? Like, what am I doing wrong? And what did I say? And is it the way that I look? You start to kind of go down that path. And um, it kind of played in with all the things that we were learning at church, right? Is to just be kind, always be kind and always, you know, family comes first. I just feel like it was a lot of mixed messaging of the things I was feeling and the things that I was being taught. Like we're you know, were taught to be Christ-like, but I didn't feel like I was really being loved and I didn't know what I had done. It just felt very, very confusing. Um, as I grew older, I understood, you know, why parents would have had maybe some reservations about my father. Like he was not a very good man. And I knew that as well, but I didn't understand why that had to do anything with me. Mm -hmm. um, and even in this tiny little town, I'll share this little, I'll share this story. It feel It's a little bit Mormon-y, but it's kind of on the cusp of it. But again, another Mormon woman who was had a prominent name in town, my dad had actually kind of continued down this path of unrighteousness and was, um, he had been sent to jail and he was in jail for about 30, 30 to 40 days. And during this time, it was right before the school start. And we had this family who kind of just took me and my brother in as like, they knew what my mom was going through and they were just kind of like, let us love on you. And she didn't have a daughter. And so she took me um, school shopping and she took me to like the buckle, you know, and that was <laughs> massive for me because I had Wait. never owned pants. <laughs> That was such a big store <laughs> in Utah where we would get all our jeans. And so you guys know it's like, um, what are some of the main brands like Rock Revival? Just like the star studded Silver, jeans. Silver, lucky. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, continue. So I want it. Like, I mean, other girls in my class, like the ones who came from wealthier families had these jeans. And that was always like a dream of mine. And she was like, pick out four pairs of jeans, any kind. So and she expensive. bought me four pairs. Like, I will never forget that, right? Because it was such a like monumental time. I was 15. So it was huge. And I show up to the very first home game. And um, my dad had been put in jail for stealing. So I showed up to my first home game and I was walking up the steps and I was just feeling so hot. I was hoping that this boy that I liked would see me. And this mother pulled me to the side and she said, where did you get those jeans? And I was like, what? And she was like, I know that your family can't afford that. <gasps> and did you steal them? Like, who did you steal them from? 
And I remember being completely caught off guard. My heart like dropped and I didn't even know what to say to her. I was just like, uh, I went, I went school shopping. Like somebody bought them for me. And she was just like, Hmm. And then she walked away and just left me like in the bleachers in front of people. And like, this had nothing to do with the religion, but similar to a story I'll share later of being like shunned in your community for something that like, like right in front of everybody in the bleachers, a 15 year old girl. And she didn't know my story. Like she didn't know that this family had chose, you know, had like been just loving up on us and felt like taking us school shopping like that. She didn't know that. Um, but she felt like she knew a little bit of my story because my dad was in jail. So it was very, um, very embarrassing, very, I felt shameful, you know, and shameful for what? Mm-hmm. Like I did, I hadn't done anything, but I think that it felt like, you know, everyone knows who my dad is and everyone now thinks that I'm my dad. So it was very, um, yeah, I'll never forget that. It was one of those moments, you know, cu- coupled with this beautiful, exciting, amazing moment to be able to wear my first pair of buckle jeans and then immediately, you know, shamed for for it. Oh, I have so many of those moments that I can recall just off the top of my head. But this is an important thing to talk about because I do think it's relevant to Mormonism. And people may think this is a stretch, but having grown up in that whole society, I can understand why this is relevant. And that's because they teach you to judge people. It's like this righteous judgment. So yes, it's love others and be kind and be Christ-like and judge them because you are taught that you shouldn't associate with people who are sinners, for example. And so it creates this environment where people are putting themselves up on a pedestal and being like, I'm so righteous, you're not. And for some reason, it also creates this society where people feel like they are able to judge you. Like, it's my job Mm -hmm. to put you in your place. It's this, I think it's also part of the whole confession forgiveness environment where they feel the need to point out when you're doing something wrong because they think you should go confess about it. Mm -hmm. They think you should go repent about it. Whatever it is, it's very much... Like, I'm right, you're wrong, and you need to fix it, young lady. Because <laughs> I remember that was so, so, so common growing up, just this shame cycle. And I think it's also because they're in their own shame cycle. And they feel like, well, I've had to repent for my own totally. sins, so should you. And it just, it's really icky. And it makes, it's so weird when you talk about it. It puts me back in that mindset of how I grew up and how uncomfortable it is and how you just feel shame yeah. You feel shame because you're self-policing and then you have people like that who are outwardly judging. Like, here's another example. Mm -hmm. So I went back for my 10-year high school reunion, even though I didn't graduate there. I went back to the small town and I went to the pool with one of my best friends and wore a bikini, which was like my most family-friendly bikini I could find because I was trying to be respectful in Utah. And when I get to the um, when I get to the reunion, one of the moms is there and she's like checking us in with tickets or whatever. And she was like, oh, hi, Shalise. This is the most clothes I've seen you in in a while or like the most clothes I've seen you in since I last saw you. And I'm like, 
what? And I was so confused. For a second, I was like, has she seen my Instagram? <laughs> but, <laughs> but then she was like, oh, we were at the pool. And I'm just like, why were you being such a bitch? It's so unnecessary. But she felt the need to shame me in front of the friends who I walked in with, still as a grown ass woman, trying to put me in my place mm. for wearing a bikini to a pool. And I was just like, welcome home, Shalise. <laughs> Here we are. We have arrived. It's just stuff like that that is so unnecessary and just makes you feel like crap for no reason. Mm-hmm. No, 100%. Oh my God, you saying that. It's just like me hearing that. And what's sad a little bit is that like, if I were to hear that, I'd probably be like, typical. Like, it's not a shock, you know? It's just like, <laughs> oh, well, was expecting that, you uh-huh. know? And anytime, like, I, you know, and this is a little bit, maybe a little bit for later, but, you know, after leaving and being out of it and then coming back to that tiny little town, I didn't realize that I would feel a little bit triggered in mm-hmm. some, like, areas, in some senses. And, um, yeah, the sometimes when I go back, I and my mother got remarried and she doesn't live there anymore. So really there's no reason for me to go back anymore, but I was there about a year and a half ago and there were a few things that I was like only in like Mormon town is this even considered like a thing. And I just I'd been <laughs> away from it for so long that I was like, "Oh, like hearing, uh-huh. you know, certain words like that, I was like, I it like makes my whole body just like Huh, shudder and thinking of that, like my children now. I'm like, if they were to be told some of these things, like that mama bear would 100% come out. Like oh, that is yeah. some of the things that are just, you know, normal or like a typical thing that, you know, a, a Mormon adult would say. And I think about it now a little bit and I'm like, you know, I think that when you live in that dichotomous thinking of good and bad and this or that for so long, you probably have stunted growth. Like in like you, there's no more learning potential for you. Like you're just here at all times. So thinking about a 45 year old woman who had grown up with all of those same messages to her. I mean, she probably didn't think she was doing anything wrong. Like she probably was like, this is my job and I'm doing it well. (laughs) This is, you know, like I don't, it's so just wild to me to think that you know, what am I as a 45 year old adult going to have as far as like my mindset? And because I've grown and I've learned and I've totally expanded my network and way of thinking and the way that I live my life that I truly, I, I truly think that adults sometimes inside of the religion have just kind of stunted that learning potential because they're only, they're focused on what the prophet or the leaders of the church are saying. And it's kind of just same shit, different day. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with intelligence. It's just a perspective thing. No. They've completely tunnel visioned their perspective. So they only see the way that they were taught to see. And that's where the issue is, because I want to make it clear, we're not calling anyone dumb by any means. It's the the I'm only learning through this lens, not I'm going to learn everyone Mm. else's perspective. And that's really the difference here, because once you take that tunnel vision goggle off, 
you can see the rest of the world for the first time and go, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. And it's not that you need to be taught how to see it. It's just once you see it, you see it and you can't go back. (laughs) Once you recognize you've had a limited perspective and you can admit to yourself that you have been potentially cutting yourself off from all these other things, then you can clearly see it. And that's, again, why we said listen with an open mind because it takes an act of choice to be able to fully process everything going on around you. So I wanted to talk about the purity culture thing. It's such a huge thing in Mormonism, and it's not specific to Mormonism. It's across many Christian denominations as well. But within your experience, for those who don't know, you are forced to go in and tell a bishop by the age of 12, your sins. And you go, I don't remember how often, it's at least yearly or however often you sin and you feel like you need to go repent of something. You go in, you sit with this bishop who is the leader of the congregation called a ward, and he is just randomly called. He could be your neighbor's best friend. He could be your dad. He could be anybody. Just one day he's not a bishop and another day he is. So there's no training involved. (laughs) There's no like ecclesiastical achievements that he has to get in order to get this position. He's just a regular dude that goes in and should not be in this therapist type position. So one of the questions is about chastity. Have you been living the law of chastity? Meaning you can't touch yourself. You can't let anyone else touch you. Um, Kissing is fine for like a few seconds, but there's very, very strict parameters here. And you're supposed to save yourself until marriage. And if you don't, it is huge, 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 huge sin. They literally tell you it's the sin next to murder. And so I would like to get your perspective on what that was like from childhood and then going into your adult years. Yeah, I definitely remember chastity being talked about all the time. Like it was never just something that was mentioned once or twice. It was kind of an ongoing conversation. Mm -hmm. But Not to get that confused with the sex talk. Like it was almost like sex is off limits. Don't ever talk about it or think about it. Like that's that. But as long as you are just not engaging in any possible way, but it was almost like this, um, you know, just so, so bad. Like you said, sin next to murder, um, I remember even getting lessons, right? Like don't even, you don't want to lay horizontal with somebody like that is, that will immediately lead to sex actions, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is awful. I really did take all of these lessons to heart because I wanted like a lot of, you know, women that I've connected with after I've left is, you know, that, that feeling of always wanting to be a good girl, mm-hmm. um, and be seen as the good girl. And I, of course, wanted that as well. Even with my rebellious nature, I still wanted to be seen as a good girl. And, you know, I followed most of the rules besides, you know, skipping seminary once. I followed <laughs> most of the rules, like all growing up. And I didn't even kiss my first boy until I was into my sophomore year. And even then I was like, this is gross. I hate it. It made me feel gross. I just didn't like it. Um, and then my senior, right before my senior year, I started dating a boy who I immediately just had over heels for. He was so great. He was preparing for a mission. 
Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about him later, but he left on his mission, but he was like, you know what, this is your senior year. And while I'm gone, you'll be in your senior year and your first year of college. Like you should still be dating. You should still be having fun. Like do all of those things. I got all of those things. You should do them and, you know, have a great time. And so halfway through my senior year, I started dating this boy who was actually two years younger than me from a different town. And he was the preacher's son. So he was not LDS and he was extremely open to being sexual and <laughs> um, which was fun. Like it was a really fun time. And I let him touch my boobs once, which is so funny because it felt so good. And but at the same time, I felt so bad about it. Yeah. Like it was like this simultaneous keep going. Oh my gosh, I'm going to hell mm -hmm. type of feeling. And, um, this was like on a Friday night. And so for 48 hours or, you know, 36 hours, I was feeling so awful about it. And I decided that on Sunday, I should probably go and tell my bishop. And I, at the time was Laurel class president, which means, you know, there's those three classes. Oh, yeah, I don't even I think that they the have names. them anymore. Oh, really? Yeah, there's like beehives, my maids and laurels. I think yeah. they like kiboshed it. I don't know. Um, but I was Laurel class president, which essentially means that I'm like the leader of all of those girls between the ages of 16 and 18. And that I am supposed to be the epitome of what a Laurel would be doing and acting like. And having your boyfriend touch your boobs is not one of those things. And I went into my bishop's office who this man has known me ever since I moved to town. Like I was a nine, almost 10 year old girl. He was in a part of our lives. Like he had watched me all growing up and, um, you know, went in there and I don't even remember how you start a conversation like that. Like, yeah. Oh, how's your day? Also Friday night. Yeah. Um, I do remember though, my punishment was not being able to take the sacrament, which is essentially communion. Like you go up, you know, it's passed around your ward and you take it like everyone sees you. It's not this thing mm -hmm. that's done in private. And I wasn't allowed to take the sacrament for six weeks. And also I couldn't go to the temple for two rounds, which I believe that we were going like once a month at the time. And that was a pretty important thing. I was, you know, I had it as part of like my, um, you know, the strength of youth pamphlet goal. I was trying to go right. like every Saturday morning. Like I was trying to make it a very normal thing that I was at the temple because only through then, you know, do you feel worthy and, and, you know, living like to the fullest. So anyway, you got that taken away from me. For those who don't know, going to the temple before you get married as a woman, it means you're doing baptisms for the dead. So you go in and you get dunked a whole bunch of times as a proxy for someone who's passed away. And these names can come from relatives who put their name in the temple. They can literally just be anybody who did not want their relatives to be baptized of different religions. It's kind of messed up. But anyways, we did that as kids. Like we went in, we're like, wow, this is a temple and you're only allowed to see a certain part of it because other parts are blocked off because you're not allowed to go there until you're worthy enough and ready and all of that stuff. So it's a very secretive little ritualistic thing in these white jumpsuits that I always felt were too see-through and the boys would see. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I was so, because you can't wear underwear underneath. It was like a whole oh thing. God. Anyway, weird experience. Maybe we shouldn't go there. But okay, you weren't able to do that. And you felt guilty because your um, the other kids and young women's, the other girls were noticing that you were not going on these trips, right? Yeah. And I mean, 
they could all see that I wasn't taking the sacrament. And my mother could also see that I wasn't taking the sacrament. I mean, so it was like a big talk about, right? Like, why is Christiana not taking the sacrament? What did she do? Because it's not like you just, it's typically when you're sinning that things are, you know, removed from you that you're being punished Mm -hmm. for. So it's not like something else would happen. I didn't have like a gluten allergy. There wasn't something like, (laughs) you know, something like that. So I just remember then feeling shameful and feeling like I can't even be the Laurel class. Like I can't even not sin, you know, I can't, it was just a very like, you know, I try so hard. I go to the temple every week. I let my boyfriend touch my boobs once out of five months. And like now everyone knows that I essentially have that scarlet letter on me. That's what it felt like. And Mm -hmm. very, my mother, you know, and my mom was very, I think when her and my dad ended up getting divorced that she, I mean, she was now a single parent. She was probably going through so many things that a child, I just was not able to comprehend. I was really only looking at her as my mother and that is it and nothing else. And she was very much, I'm sure she felt like she needed to be the mother and the father, like the disciplinary. And she, there was just no give with that woman in high school. Like there, no matter what I did, whether it was, you know, skip seminary or let my boyfriend judge my boobs, it was just like, it was all the same to her. And it was punishment of like, well, now you're just grounded for, you know, how she was just holding these grudges and just so angry. And which then in turn made me a little bit more willing to be rebellious. Like no matter what I do, it just still feels like I'm getting punished. Like no matter what, whether it's a good thing, a bad thing, a big thing, a little thing, like it's just all wrong. Unless I'm like being quiet, reading the scriptures and like, that's it. Like that literally felt Mm -hmm. like where, you know, where I was, which I think truly led me into that when I left for college um, because my sexual assault happened I'd been, I'd been away from my house for maybe three weeks. Like it was not long. Um, Mm. and again, I had never been talked to about all of the adverse. I'd never been talked to about, you know, the word of wisdom, the effects that it could have on you. It was just always don't even think about doing it. And then it's just not an issue. Like it was just this or that it's you either do follow the word of wisdom or you don't. And you're a massive sinner and really bad things happen to you. Like it's just one or the other. Yeah. And so I think that because of that kind of tension that I was having with my mother, I was a little bit more willing to try, you know, alcohol or breaking the word of wisdom because it was like, listen, like no matter what, there's kind of always going to be this, you're not quite good enough. I'd been getting that message since I was just a little girl. And so I think that my brain was just like, you know, there's always also just like repenting. We're taught that we can just repent. It was just kind of, I was also 18 years old. So I didn't really have, you know, the full, uh, the full capacity to understand the situation altogether. But I think that, um, yeah, leaving on such kind of a, an angry note of I'm getting punished. This was literally like two weeks before graduation where I, where the, Bishop told me that I couldn't take the sacrament or maybe not a couple weeks before graduation. It was like beginning of April because I still needed to graduate. And he was like, the six weeks is when you're graduating and then you can go to college and, you know, pick up from there. And so I think that all of those things combined um, 
just made me a little bit more willing to kind of go outside of, you know, what I had been taught and maybe experience trying something different without having Mm -hmm. to go to my bishop right then because nobody would see me. I would be at college. And for those who don't know, the word of wisdom is this set of rules that Joseph Smith laid out that no one really followed until like the 1920s, 30s or something anyway. But it's you can't have alcohol. You can't have coffee or tea. Um, What else is in the word of wisdom? Eat meat sparingly, which nobody does. (laughs) Like, why are we so strict on these other things? But obviously no drugs weed is off the table, but prescription drugs, go for it. Yeah, prescription drugs are fine. <laughs> yeah, I think it was anything essentially that was going to like alter your state of mind, which is just funny because yeah. caffeine does that too. Like it's just, it's kind of just random, random things. Yeah. Yeah. And the caffeine rule is also tricky because in the actual scripture, it says no hot drinks and they just decided one day like, oh, they meant coffee. Um, but then hot chocolate's fine, but hot chocolate also has caffeine. It's just like, it's, I don't know. It's a weird thing. So anyways, it is a very, very, very big deal in Mormonism that you cannot go against the word of wisdom and they paint it to be like, it's so that you have the most healthy temple and your body is your temple. And like even specific tea, like you can have herbal tea, but you can't have black tea because it'll tan your insides or something. I don't know. So you decided to go off and like, okay, I'm going to try alcohol. And then this is when this assault happens. And mm-hmm. do you want to talk a little bit about how you were feeling or or how that happened? Yeah. So, I mean, essentially, just to sum it up, I have decided to go to a party and obviously had no idea about alcohol and the way that it altered your body. And I mean, got to a point where I was blackout drunk, couldn't even stand up or open my eyes. And I was woken up with water being poured on my vagina and um, yeah, it was just awful. I woke up the next morning and I had hickeys on my neck and there was blood everywhere. And oh my, gosh. I, my mother was, we had been in another kind of like argument um, the night before And I woke up to text messages from her saying that she was going, she was on her way because I was living in Phoenix at the time. She was in Northern Arizona. It took about three and a half hours. And when I looked at my phone, she had sent that about two and a half hours ago. So I knew that I had about an hour before I needed to be home and be like myself, which I didn't even, I was like speechless. I didn't really know how to care for myself. I think I just went into like, survival mode. I was still drunk. So I had to have a friend drive me home. I told my mom that I had like, I can't even remember the story that I came up with as to why I didn't have my car with me. But I got to um, the place where I was living and I was living with a girl who was about 12 years older than me at the time. She also came from that tiny little Mormon town and she had kind of gone down this, she had left the church and had been, you know, into drugs and alcohol. And so the way her mother had presented her, me living with her was that I could be like a good example and like bring her back in to the fold. Oh, and so that's why I was living with her. Um, and I walked in the door and I remember immediately opening up and telling her what had happened. And she was like, oh, honey, like when you get drunk, like shit like that happens. And I was like, oh, okay. So I think immediately because of that experience, I just thought, 
okay, if I choose to drink, sexual assault is just going to happen. And I just need to like, it's, it's, if I do this, then this will happen. So it's just kind of, you take one with the other. Yeah. So that was like my first person that I had told. And that was the first response. So I ran upstairs, saw these hickeys on my neck and I took my curling iron and I just burnt the shit out of my neck so that I could tell my mom that I was curling my hair and had burnt my neck. And I just remember being like, what are you going to say? You have to just, it was almost like I had to like turn off Anything that I had felt, anything my body was going through, I couldn't feel my vagina. I was completely numb, like could not oh. feel it, which, and I've never, like I've had babies and I have never felt that pain again. Oh. And um, anyway, I just kind of immediately was like, what are you going to say? What are you going to act like? You need to be yourself. You need to just act like everything's fine. Mm-hmm. And the friend that had taken me home had bought me plan B because she was like, we don't know what happened. Here's this, like you take it. And I had never taken any type of like hard medication even. And plan B like fucks you up. It just rips up your tummy and just does not make you feel very well. So I took this, I was still hungover and my mother was coming and I was just like everywhere was in knots and she got there and she could totally tell something was wrong, but I was just essentially like, I just don't feel well. I don't really want to do much. And we went to lunch and I thought, you know, you could tell her now, like you could tell her what happened now because you're in public and she can't like yell and scream. Like what could she do? And then I was like, no, like now is not the time. And, um, she came back to the house and like, we hung out for maybe a couple more hours and, um, she left and like, that was that I didn't tell her. And that's kind of when that whole, I was just alone with my thoughts. So a lot of that dichotomous thinking, I was so used to thinking only do good that now I was thinking, well, essentially I'm bad at this point. Like I've waited my whole life to, you know, lose my virginity to my returned missionary. And Mm -hmm. now it's been taken. So what's the point? Like, what's the point anymore of even trying to save myself or trying to recoup or trying to repent? Like, I just, I was like, you know, I'm already there. Like, I'm already to the bottom. And my mindset just completely shifted of like, well, now nothing is important to me at all. And because my roommate had told me, you know, like they're kind of coupled. I just was like, well, it is what it is, whatever, like no big deal. And I stayed in Phoenix for a few more weeks and I actually ended up telling another coworker who I'd become really close with. And she was like, that is sexual assault. Like, that is not okay. That doesn't happen. That isn't normal. Like, that isn't something that, you know, is just typical for people to experience. She was like, you need to report that. And I, she had obviously been raised by a very, like, empowering mother. I ended up meeting her mother later. And I was like, wow. Mm -hmm. Like, she was just, she knew what she wanted and what she was saying. And it was very, you know, that it gave me energy. But at the end of the day, I was like, there's so much more to this. Like if I tell them, I'm going to have to tell my mom and my 
bishop. Like there's so many more things than that go into this. And she didn't understand that. She didn't get it. She told me she would go with me. She, um, you know, she was very empowering and I did end up going and reporting, but I didn't have any information, which, and it was weeks later. So it was essentially like, okay, so you got drunk, this happened and you didn't get tested. And now it's weeks later. Like we can't do much for you. And I was like, okay, whatever. Mm. But because I think of that whole situation and her just being very adamant that this wasn't a typical experience that I ended up having a couple more shitty experiences. Not something that like, you know, as a, as a young girl, I did dream of like being with a man, you know, and typically after our temple marriage or whatever, but it was Mm -hmm. just not like those experiences were not like special or sweet. It very much felt like I was being used. And so after, I don't know, a few more weeks down in Phoenix, I was like, you know, I feel really heavy. Like I don't feel good. I need I need to either talk about it. I'm sure it was because I was feeling so much shame. And as we know, like shame lives in the dark. So I I was really wanting to talk about it, but I didn't know to who. So I ended up, the woman who had bought me my buckle jeans, I called her and I was like, something really bad happened. And she was very, um, she's not really a super emotional person. So she was very like, okay, what do you need? What do you want me to do? What, like, do you want me to tell your mom? Do you want to tell your mom? Do you, you just tell me what you need. And I was like, I don't even know what I need. And, um, she was like, okay, well, listen, my husband, cause my, why we were so close is my mom and her husband worked directly together. And so she's like, I'm just going to let him know that you need help and your mom and him can go together and just come and get you. And I was like, okay, great. That sounded like a good plan. So I essentially just like up and left. Um, I had a softball scholarship that I had to tell them that I was no longer going to take because my mom was like, if you come home, like you're coming home. And I was like, okay. And I think I was just at such a level of like, I didn't know what to do. I didn't even really, I wasn't even processing what had happened. I was just kind of going on with my life like normal. Um, and I didn't know what to expect when I went home. So we get home and the woman hadn't told my mom or her husband what had happened. She had just said, Chris is in a really bad spot. She needs you. So my mom knew something was going on. I think she, she always knew like ever since that first morning, right? That she came to Phoenix and she opened that door. She knew something was wrong. She was probably just waiting for me to tell her. So I ended up telling her and instead of her like embracing me and loving me, she it basically made her sick. She didn't speak to me for like three days. And her first thing that she said was like, you need to go and tell the bishop, which was my same bishop, the one that I had told about, you know, my boyfriend and chastity and the, the bishop who had known me, you know, forever. And I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know about going in. Like, this isn't like a, I wasn't sinning. And she's like, well, you chose to break the word of wisdom, which led to this. And so it's like all, it's kind of cooped together again. And um, I remember just being like, well, I guess that's the next step, right? Like, I don't feel good now. Maybe I will feel better once I tell him and kind of move towards the repentance process, whatever. So 
we met and I remember it was at the seminary because he was seminary teacher and bishop at the same time. And so I met him at the seminary building and we went into his office and, you know, just a caveat, this happened 16 years ago. So the way that my brain remembers it, I mean, there, it could not remember it completely, but I remember that feeling of being so vulnerable and telling him like everything. And then him just like staring and just it feeling very cold and very robotic. There was no like, I I just can't imagine knowing and loving someone for over a decade, like watching them grow up and then having them come to me and tell me such a horrific thing. And then me just being like, well, we're going to have to have a church court about this. Like, I just, I just, you know, then it seemed like, well, I guess that is the normal, that's the next step, right? Is that when you sin and it's that serious, especially a sin that's next to murder and with breaking the word of wisdom, like it, it, you know, now you're in a church court, but it was very, again, just so cold. And I mean, I don't even, I don't remember like a hug. I think he just like shook my hand and was like, you'll get through this type of deal. My mom was still really cold. Like she was just like, okay, well, you know, you're starting the process, like nice job. Um, And yeah, from there, I was no longer going to go to Phoenix. I was going to go to Flagstaff. And my mom was adamant that I was living with good Mormon girls. And so she like made sure that we found roommates like from the institute up there that they're, you know, they were looking for a roommate. And in the middle of all of this, I had my church court. And this is at least how it was done then. I don't know if this is typical or if it's still done this way now. But for me, it was me going in and it was with the whole the whole bishopric. So, you know, the bishop, his first counselor, second counselor, and then his secretary was there. And remember, I'm in a tiny little Mormon town. So all of these men are men that I've known my whole life. Yeah. Men that watched me grow up and who came and watched me play sports. And now I'm sitting in front of them telling them this horrific story. And of course, they're like, do not leave out any details because that's very important. It can't just be a summary, right? You can't just say, I blacked out and I woke up here. That's not Mm -hmm. enough. So essentially, I just had to, you know, relive it again. And after I had finished telling what had happened, they were like, okay, you need to leave the room and we now pray until we get an answer from God as to what the next step is. And if you aren't really familiar with like a bishop, they're essentially, I mean, they're the leaders of your ward. Like we're taught that they are the ones who get revelation for their ward, like that they have that direct line of communication. So he is, you know, now praying with his bishop, Rick, and I'm thinking God is going to tell him <clears throat> what I need in order to, you know, be fixed or whatever it was that I thought then. And they brought me back in about 20 minutes later, 20 or 30 minutes later. And they said, you know, we want, we want to have a 60 day window before we make our decision. We want to 
have you go to college and do all of these, you know, next steps and then come back in 60 days. So this was like September ish. And they wanted me to come back because I was going to come back for Thanksgiving. So they were like, let's just do it on Thanksgiving weekend. And I was like, sure. Okay. So went back up to, you know, school and I had all of these things that they wanted me to do. I was meeting with my bishop on like a weekly basis. Sometimes I wasn't even going to church, but I would just come and meet with my bishop. And that's when my bishop gave me the miracle of forgiveness was during this time. And I don't know if you want to talk about that. I didn't really know too much about the book. I had heard about it. Like I had heard this is a really like solid book for when you're going through repentance because it's just very straightforward. It has all of the information that you need in it. And so I was handed this book um, during this time. I don't know if you have experience with it or no other people who have, but it's pretty intense. I was, I was given the book around the time where I was supposed to be forgiving someone for something they had done. And I looked at it and I was like, I'm not going to read this. (laughs) I'm so glad that I didn't. It's awful. Some of the things that they say in there, if I can remember correctly, to give some examples, it was written by a Mormon prophet or apostle. Yeah, Yeah, prophet. Um, He had been a prophet at at a time. Okay. So there's things like if you are gay, it's the same as bestiality or pedophilia. Or if you touch yourself, you will turn gay. Yeah. Like you're the scum of the earth. Like that's literally a line in there is that like, if you have broken the law of chastity, like you are the scum of the earth, you are like gum on the bottom of someone's shoe. Like it's very real. I mean, real as in whatever he felt like saying was real, but he, I mean, it's very intense. And essentially the whole book is Again, like I know I've said it seven times at this point, but the, that dichotomous thinking of like, it's this or it's this, like you are either doing these 87 things mm-hmm. or you're fucking failing. Like you are, and he says failing like a, a yeah. lot of times. And I mean, it's like little things like, okay, you have to be paying your tithing. You have to be having family prayer. You have to be attending your meetings. You have to be serving. And it's like, Jesus, I'm not doing Half of, I, I am good if I'm even like able to get a chapter of my scriptures in. I don't even understand what's happening in there. Like it just, it really makes you feel like you are a piece of shit. I mean, there's no other. And I kept thinking it's going to get better. Like it's going to, this is just like the first few chapters might just keep, you know, maybe they're just trying to really tell you how bad it is when you're sinning, but it never got better. Like it just kept going down this, like, I mean, if you're, if you're doing this, you are bad. You are failing at this. And the time to repent is now. Like you have to do it now. There's no later. There's no waiting. It's either today or never. And you could lose that, you know, chance. And it was just, yeah, it was really, really heavy for all of the shit that I was already feeling weighted down by. Like it didn't feel encouraging. It wasn't like, you know, you've got this. It wasn't like that at all. And so, which I mean, and we, we know as human beings, we all need something different. The way we learn, the way we, take in life. It's all different. So you can't just give. And the church just kind of does this period. It's just like, here's an umbrella and it now needs to fit with everybody. Like this book kid is now being used. I mean, 
And, and what's so crazy about it is the a prophet at the time wrote this book. And if the prophet is like the Pope, like, I mean, he is the leader of the church. He's receiving direct revel. He speaks to God. And so if he is saying that this book is needed, if he's the one saying that we need to be reading this book, then you know that leaders of the church, bishops and Sunday school teachers and seminary teachers are now recommending this book to hundreds of thousands to millions of people that are all different, who are all on a totally different path, who have experienced things so differently. And they're just saying, just read it and you, it'll be fine. And I think that there's been so much backlash from mm -hmm. that book that, that of course, all of the, you know, justifications have come out of like, well, it was, you know, it was for the time. It was for that time. And okay. I'm like, I don't think so. Mormons set themselves apart because they say, we are the only church who has a current prophet who receives direct revelation from God. And so you're growing up with this mindset, like you mentioned, that he is talking to God. And so anything the prophet says is basically God saying it. Now, we know that that's not really the case, but that's what we grew up thinking, right? And same goes for all the people who are under him. So all the way down to the bishop, which is like the lowest, highest level <laughs> of receiving direct revelation from God to the members of the ward. So that's miracle forgiveness. Everyone just thinks, oh, this is what God wants me to know. And there's no nuance. It's all just black and white, like you said. And there were so many things. You said it so perfectly that made me think of other things. Like, this is why the perfectionism complex is so strong within Mormon communities and within these Mormon families, especially the mothers who have so much pressure to do all of these things and why they have to appear perfect. And even though they seem like everything's perfect, chances are they are fighting inside to keep that perception up. Because if they look happy, people are going to perceive that they are without sin. They're going to perceive that they are doing everything that God wants them to do because happiness is worthiness. Mm -hmm. And so if you show anything less than happiness, people are going to be thinking, oh, she must not be reading her scriptures enough or she must not be doing her family prayer or whatever it is. And all of these things are not at least to my knowledge, are not directly taught in Sunday school, but it is very much implied. It is, oh, yeah. if you're not happy, it's because you're doing something wrong. And so that's where this huge psychological break happens under the surface that people don't recognize because they're only seeing the facade that is being presented to them. Mm -hmm. They're not seeing when they go home, these mothers, and cry themselves to sleep because they're not doing one of the 87 things on the list that they're supposed to be doing or they're depressed and they think it's because they're not praying enough when in reality they just need help. They just need some like a therapist. They need someone to step in and say, hey, you're struggling and that's okay. And this is how we can help you not just turn them to prayer. Any problem that you have, pray about it. Any problem you have, read the scriptures. There's never any concrete thing that can actually help people. And that's also what I wanted to bring up as you were talking about the church court. I want to make it very clear for people who aren't familiar with Mormonism. Church court is discipline. It is not Let's get together, share your story with us, Chris, and please let us tell you how we can help you. That is not what church court is. It is a very extreme punishment for what they perceive as very extreme sins. 
So not only do you have an 18-year-old who has just been violently assaulted, now you are telling her that she is so worthless that she needs to repent for her sin of being assaulted and not receive any help. And it's making me emotional because it's just so, it's so hard to believe that they would look at you after you're telling them their story and say, yeah, we're going to think about your punishment. What? What do you mean your punishment? Like you Mm. should, first of all, they never should have been involved in those conversations. You should have been supported with an actual licensed therapist who knows how to handle these types of situations, who is trained for that. Mm. You should have been welcomed with open arms. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. That was not okay. This was not your fault. And I think that's the number one thing I want to say to you is that this was not your fault. And I know that you know that. It's just... When you are raised in an environment that is telling you that you are unworthy, if something happens to you, it's really hard to flip that switch and and recognize, really, truly recognize internally that you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't deserve that. Oh, yeah. And that's like the major message I want to get across in this episode. If something has happened to you and someone has told you that you are unworthy because of that, they're wrong. <laughs> they are absolutely wrong. And if you did not receive that help, I am sorry. And you you can be helped. And people are willing to help you. You just have to find the right people, mm-hmm. not the people who are trying to blame you for it. So I can... I can only imagine what you're going through. And then you were given this God-awful book that is telling you that you are the scum of the earth, that is telling Mm. you that you are worthless because there is no room for assault. It's just if you had sex, you're wrong and Mm. you're broken and no one's going to want you. And it's the chewed gum analogy they gave us in in friggin' Young Women's or the Licked Cupcake or whatever it is. Name your object lesson here. (sighs) All of these things culminate to us just feeling completely lost, worthless, useless, not understanding boundaries, not understanding the nuance, not understanding that you can have choices. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. There can be things in between. And it's just so harmful. So just all of that to say, I just like stepped on my soapbox for 10 minutes. Thank you for sharing (laughs) and for being willing to open up about this because it's so incredibly important. And I'm just so grateful that you're here to talk to us about it. Yeah, of course. And one thing to add is that like, I think what a lot of people tend to do is almost look at bishops as therapists because they're that leader. So they just kind of take on this role of being someone who can counsel you and who can advise you. Like I hear that all the time, even in my my, um, religious family, is that they'll be like, oh, we'll just consult the bishop. And I'm like, that dude is just like, he went to dental school. Like he's not, yeah, he's not qualified. <laughs> no. And it's just like wild to me, but alas. So during this time, the time between, you know, that I'm trying to work with my bishop and read the miracle for forgiveness, I am not really like, I'm still just going to parties and whatever happens is happening. And I'm not really trying to necessarily like I wouldn't even say I was so confused. I was like, what the fuck am I repenting for? Like, I truly think that I was like, yeah, I don't even whatever. I was just trying to not think about it or feel it. It was just kind of on the back burner. Mm-hmm. So I go home for 
Thanksgiving and we have my church court again and same thing. They come back in and they're like, okay, recount what happened to you and then tell us in the time that since this event happened to now, what have you done to repent, seek forgiveness and kind of head back to, you know, feeling whole or whatever. And I was just super honest and I was like, not much, you know, like I've been visiting with my bishop. I'm reading this really awful book. It's making me feel really bad. Um, and that's what I've done. And they were like, have you kept the word of wisdom? And I was like, no. And they were like, have you kept the law of chastity? And I was like, no. And they were like, okay, go out of the room again. We're going to pray. They brought me back in 20 or 30 minutes later. And they were like, okay, God has told us that you need to be disfellowshipped, which there's two results in a disciplinary council, which is excommunication, which is you lose all of your records from the church. Like it looks like you were never baptized. You're just, you're out. Um, and you can, of course, come back in, but that just removes everything that has happened inside of the church. Whereas disfellowshipped is you still have your like baptismal records, but you lose all of your ability to pray, hold a calling, um, give a talk. Like you can't really do anything. And they do advise you to take the missionary lessons again. You know, I honestly don't remember how I felt. I probably was just like, fuck off. Like I don't remember necessarily feeling really sad. If anything, I was embarrassed. Um, like I have done whatever I am has been so bad that they have to, I'm now no longer allowed to do anything inside of the church. Um, whereas six months ago I was Laurel class president. So I think that it was just more like, shit, this is embarrassing. Um, but whatever. So right after this, I go back up to college and, um, my, my roommates are like adamant that I go to this dance with them. And, um, it's like all of the wards are there. So it's, you know, hundreds of youth. And if you've ever been to a Mormon function or really any religious function, you typically start and end with prayer. And, mm -hmm. you know, they typically ask somebody in the congregation or whatever to say the prayer. So at the end of the night, I was standing next to the girl who was in charge. There was probably 500 or 600 of us there. And she was like, okay, thanks so much for coming. We're going to close with the prayer. And she turns to me and she's like, will you say the prayer? And I was like, mm. I can't. And she was like, come on, just say the prayer. And she's like in a microphone, just like I am now. So everybody in the gym can hear her. And I was like, no, like I can't. And she was like, oh my gosh, like just stop being a baby about it. And I was just like, just kind of like shrugged my shoulders oh. and she was like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to find somebody else. And I was mortified because I truly couldn't give the prayer. Like I would have been totally right. happy to give the prayer, but I couldn't. Like I was now with being, you know, disfellowshipped. I could now no longer be at a microphone in church. I couldn't bear. I, I think you can bear your testimony. I can't remember, but you cannot give a talk. You can't give a prayer. You can't hold a calling. Those for sure. I know. And I was just mortified. I mean, now everyone thinks I'm a baby because I'm not choosing to give a prayer. And I was just like, this is the worst fucking thing. Like none of this, none of the things happening in my life are making me happy. Like reading this book, this is awful. Going to my Sunday school lessons, I can't even talk. Like 
I'm being called out in front of this huge group of the only Mormons, you know, here that I'm just like, I just don't think that I can do it. And I just stopped going to church. Um, I stopped really doing much with, when it came to church. I mean, if I went home, I would go to church, but it was not like, it was just not something that I wanted to be a part of my life. But when you're told your whole life, certain things like, you know, you need to get married in the temple in order to make it to the celestial kingdom. That shit does not leave your brain just because you're choosing mm-hmm. to not go to church. Um, and so I would think about that. I mean, I thought about that a lot, or I would think about my patriarchal blessing that said, you will marry a return missionary and you will have a lot of children and you will be very blessed financially. You know, all of these things that I'm still, I'm still thinking about all of this as I'm, you know, choosing to step away. And remember, I had mentioned that I was dating a missionary and that he was going to come back. He was gone for two years and he ended up coming back about, I don't know, eight or nine months after I'd been disfellowshipped. And him and I were still talking. So he knew all of this. And when you're on a mission, you're not allowed to call other than on Mother's Day and Christmas. So him and I were writing letters back and forth on a weekly basis. He knew like everything that had happened to me. Um, he actually tried to come home when the sexual assault had happened. Mm. And I was like, absolutely not. Like that would be, that would not be good. Like you should probably just stay there. Um, which probably tainted a little bit of his mission. I mean, he was in love with me and I had just experienced something really massive and he was away from me and couldn't comfort me. Um, and I didn't really think about that kind of stuff then. I, th- I see it now, but I didn't think about it then. Um, anyways, he came home and we ended up dating for a little bit to just see. I mean, we had talked for two years via letters and we had dated for four or five months before he left. And we really felt like we did have a connection. And he, you know, when he came home, I was like, we have lived really different lives the last two years. And I just am calling that out that like, I don't expect you to want to date me or because, you know, the whole licked cupcake thing. I was like, yikes, like he won't even want to be with me at all. He was like, you know, that doesn't matter to me. And I still want to date you. And we were dating, um, I don't know, for about four or five months. And we ended up having sex. And that was really, really rough for him. Not so much for me because I think I had like turned off all of those emotions about it. I was just like, it is what Mm -hmm. it is. Like, it's not a big deal. And it did feel so different with him. Like he, I loved him, you know, it was very special. And he was like, okay, we have two options. Like we're either getting married to like now, like we're this month, we just got to get married so that we can work towards that temple marriage or you know, we stop having sex because when you are reinstated back into the church after being disfellowshipped, you have to abstain from sex for a year and you have to obey all of these laws, right? Like the, obviously the law of chastity and the word of wisdom and all of those things. And I would have to take the missionary lessons again. It was very, really big. And so he was like, you know, we either get married now or we stop and we, you know, for the next year, we're abstinent and we work towards that temple marriage and being abstinent was not something that I was trying to do. Um, and so I was just like, that sounds bad. Both of those options sound bad. <laughs> How about like you just move in with me and we just continue to date. And like, that's that. And you're 19, right? Yeah. You're I was 19, 19. And he's probably 21. Yeah. Yep. 
I just want to make sure everyone knows the ages because that's a really big deal. <laughs> We're not like mid-20s, late-20s. No, very, very young because in Mormon culture, it's basically when you get married. And people fight me on this all the time. And I'm like, you know that it's true. You know that it's true because the men are set. They're told, OK, go on a mission. And when you come home, you get married because yeah. they don't want them to, quote, sin. Because like Chris is saying, if you, quote, sin – with a, a girl, then you can't get married in the temple for a year. And that's a really, really big deal. It's a it's like shame on you and your family. And everyone knows about it. It's a whole thing. And so for him to have sex after coming home from a mission where the only contact he's ever had are handshakes, you can't give hugs. It is like you are away. You can't touch yourself. Nothing. And so, of course, he comes home, he's in love, and he wants to express that love, and then he has sex, and it's just, like, the most shame you could imagine for a returned missionary to go through. Mm -hmm. And so, he's in panic mode at 21, like, let's get married tomorrow. What? No. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, but this is what they force you into when you're a part of this society. So, I just had to clarify that for people who weren't aware. Yeah, I'm glad that you did. And you know, when just me being 19, like I didn't have the understanding of what he was probably going through either. Like I was just so removed. I didn't want to have to to feel shame anymore. I didn't want to have to yeah. feel that. Whereas that was so like I had kind of gone through that whole shame spiral like a year and a half before. And I was just kind of in the don't feel anything type of um, mode mm -hmm. at this point. And so, yeah, you're right. He probably was feeling so much shame and he didn't want to lose me, but I was uh, not ready to, you know, go through a year of being abstinent. I was just like, I don't want any of that. I also don't want to get married. So like, I just don't think that that's the right decision. We ended up breaking up, which was really sad. I mean, because it's not that we broke up because we couldn't get along or something like that. It was just that I was like, there is no way, like I can't get married. And also I'm not doing that. So it's, you know, it felt again, kind of like it's this or that. Yeah. And I hate being put into that type of like, you either choose this or you choose this. And I was like, I can't choose either. So let's just take a break. And we ended up, you know, breaking up and which was really hard and sad. I ended up turning 20 um, a few months later and I reached out to my uncle and I was like, listen, I need something different than what I'm doing now. He was on the heart transplant list. And so when you're on the heart transplant list, anytime that there's a potential match, you're like going to Mayo because that could be your match. Um, and so he was like, you know what? I'm gone all the time. I'm having to go back and forth. Why don't you just come here to South Dakota? You can take care of the dogs and you can just kind of like help us around the house just to get out. And so that was my, um, that was my transition here. And within a couple of weeks, I had met another Mormon who had grown up in the church and we felt very uh, alike because even though, you know, his experience was different than mine and we were, st we were both kind of away from the church at the time. We were both breaking the word of wisdom. Um, and so we felt a connection and I was like, you know, I like that this person has the same background as me and not even necessarily as I didn't look at it at first as like, this is my celestial kingdom marriage. I didn't see it the first <laughs> like month. That wasn't it. I was like, 
I love that he understands like the things that I'm saying, like he gets when I say celestial kingdom, even like he understands what it means to be away from the church and still have all of those thoughts. And so it felt very, um, you know, it just felt nice. It felt comforting. I had really been with people who either weren't LDS or her or who were trying to marry me tomorrow. And so I was like, this is nice to just like be here with someone who is just relaxed. Um, but if you're familiar, like Shalise said, with Mormon dating culture, you typically are married by the time you're 21 or you're like getting engaged. Mm-hmm. And I was already, I was 20 and I was probably one of the last women in my class to get engaged. Like all of them had already been married and already had a kid or two at that point. Jeez. And so, you know, him and I continued to date for, we were hanging out at first, just like just being friends. And then we started to date. And within a few weeks, probably, I mean, we were engaged and there was a few reasons for that. I mean, I think that there's a lot that goes into play here is obviously I enjoyed him. (laughs) I liked him. He was very sweet and kind and loving, and we both grew up the same, but there was a lot of other things like Love felt very conditional to me as long as I was doing the things that I was supposed to be doing. That's a phrase that I like, oh God, I just hate that phrase, supposed to be, because we're all so different, supposed to be doing whatever we want. But anyways, um, it felt very conditional. Like, oh, if I end up marrying him and we go back to the church, this is like, you know, I'm back. And it felt, um, it felt safe. It felt like I know this, like Mm. I've been taught this my whole life, right? It's a fucking blueprint. So this isn't going to be difficult. Um, The only caveat was that, remember I said that when you're disfellowshipped and you want to get married and we had chosen, we had talked about it and we were like, you know what, let's just go ahead and do a temple marriage. So I now am disfellowshipped and have to get re-fellowshipped or whatever, reinstated. 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 So I now have to start the whole process over of me going to my bishop and confessing my sins, my new bishop, confessing my new sins and going through the missionary lessons and just like going on that whole path, no sex for a year. And my new bishop happens to be my new father-in-law. Yikes. And it's just so wild to me that no one was like, that would be weird. You know, let's have you work with this bishop. Like no one said that. It was just like, oh yeah, that's, that's what you do. So I end up confessing. Wait, all of- hold on. So you have to confess having sex with his son? Well, we had, we hadn't, we hadn't. So I'm like, I just had to confess. You hadn't had sex yet? Mm-mm. No, we were wow. like, you know. It, we're, let's just do it. Like, let's just do this in a clean, in a clean way, in like the most straightforward way. And I was like, that's a lot of work for me. Cause now Ooh. I have to do all of this crazy shit. He had never, he hadn't been disfellowshipped. Um, but I alas have to tell my father-in-law about all of the sexual experiences I had had, you know, and before so him. <laughs> before oh. him. And you're supposed to, I mean, when you marry in the Mormon church, I mean, Essentially, they want you to be virgins. So it's not even me 
coming in and telling him past was still like, yikes, he is going to know everything that I've ever done. He's going to know how many people I've slept with. He's going to know all of these sins about me. And he's going to have to look at me as his daughter-in-law and also as a bishop. And you're, I mean, at least to me, I was always taught that like a bishop was given almost like rose colored glasses for his ward. Like he, he listens, but he doesn't judge you. And so I'm like, mm-hmm. how can you not as a human being listen to someone telling you all the things they've done and you just not inherently even this much be like, yikes. Um, <laughs> So anyways, we, I started that whole process. We made it through chastity. Law of chastity was kept. I took the missionary lessons. I met with the state president. I was reinstated. Like everything was on the up and up. (laughs) That's off. I don't know how you did that. (laughs) I was just so adamant. And I think, like I said before, I mean, that had been talked, that had been told to me my whole life that like the goal was always temple marriage was always celestial kingdom, always. Mm -hmm. And so I think that I was still in that mindset of like, well, I'm not going to be saved (laughs) if I'm choosing a different life. Like it's not true happiness. It might be momentarily, it might be momentarily happy, but this is a sustainable growth. <laughs> this is like a, the sustainable life to lead. And so, you know, I wish that I could remember or that I kept a journal like of that time of how I felt, but I don't necessarily remember feeling lighter or happier. I think that what felt happy was that I set a goal and I made the goal. Like I, I, you know, followed the rules until, and then checked it off. Like, hell yeah, I got to my goal, but I don't necessarily think that it was because of what I was doing necessarily. It was just, you know, the act of it. But now we were here going to our temple marriage and we have to get our endowments before, which means that you go in by yourself and you go through all of the, I don't even know what they're called really. Like I don't even the remember rituals. that. The, yeah. Yeah. You go through stuff. The rites and passages and tokens and secret handshakes and chanting and wearing yes. weird stuff. You have to do all of that really quick before you get married so that you're a little bit more, you know, familiar. You have your garment at this stage. So that's where you, once you're, you have to like buy garments before you go in so that you can put them on once you're done with the ceremony. And I remember the ceremony being long. I mean, it was like church. I mean, you went for like three hours, like, and you were in different rooms, you progressed to different rooms. And I mean, the temples are beautiful. They're very extravagant and very elegant. I mean, they're they're absolutely gorgeous and they're pristine. I mean, they're immaculate, but the things that are being talked about and said and the, the rituals that you do inside, I honestly just think that it was almost like, just get through this. Um, because it's what you need to do anyway. Like, it's not that I could just stop here and be like, this is weirding me out. Is there another option? Like there was never that. (laughs) It was like, this is your option. Just get through it. And you have all of your family behind you. You have, you know, your friends that have already gone through that are like, you got this. This is the best thing for you. And you're just like, yeah, like I am doing it. I don't know why. And it just, you know, I think that just the the experience in itself. Like, I really wish that my brain, it probably blocked it out. I really wish that I could 
remember more of like what had happened, but I essentially just remember like the story of Adam and Eve and how they came to be and you becoming a wife and, you know, you getting your, your um, name, your temple name, right. Which is like a biblical Mm -hmm. name and you like reaching your hand through the veil and shaking someone's hand and whatever. (laughs) It's so funny because like the way you're describing it, I'm like, "Mm hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. But I bet people listening are like, what in the actual fuck? (laughs) Like, it's so weird. It's essentially all stolen from Freemasonry. Joseph Smith, who was the leader, the original prophet of the Mormon Church, became a Freemason. A few months later, the temple ceremony was announced. And it's, like, literally just plagiarized from Freemasonry. But there's, like, this weird garb that you have to wear. Um, Men have, like, these baker hat-looking things. I remember I saw it once because my half-sister was getting sealed to us for time on all eternity. And I remember walking in as like a 12, 13-year-old. And I'm like, what in the world is everyone wearing? It was such a weird moment. So, yeah, there's just a lot that goes into the temple. And that could be an entire episode on its own. But I just had Mm -hmm. to point out that it is super weird and culty. And I don't mean that as an offense because I know people, it's like the most sacred thing to them in the world. But like you were saying, Chris, I think it's only viewed that way because it is the top goal. It is the only goal since you're a child. I love to see the temple. I know I'm going there someday. It's like your whole life is centered around making it there and you made it there and you went through a lot to make it there. So once you're there and you have your friends saying, this is great, this is great, amazing, you don't question it because you're like, okay, well, they're doing it. Well, they're doing it. This is what the goal was, right? You just kind of go along with it, no matter how weird it is. Totally. And then you did it. Like, so how did you feel afterwards? Were you just like, huh, was that it? Or (laughs) do you remember how you felt? (laughs) I mean, it is kind of like that because you go through and you're just in kind of like a basic dress. Like you don't wear your wedding dress, like your beautiful extravagant wedding dress. You wear like a very basic, you know, white dress with like a cape, apron, bonnet. Like you feel like a pilgrim, you know, like you don't (laughs) feel sexy. You don't feel like a hot bride. You feel like the opposite of that. Um, But I think because of the connotation behind all of it and like, this is so sacred, like you made it here. Like you are now you know, blessed, like, oh my God, all the blessings that come from you being here, Chris. It was like, okay, I can't wait for that. And so I think that, you know, afterwards, kind of with anything in life though, right? You have this huge goal and you get there and then you're like, okay, now what? Like it just, life keeps going on. And it was kind of the same. It was like, okay, we're now married in the temple and now we can have sex like immediately. Okay. That's great. And then like what next? And now I have garments. So that was the only thing that felt a little bit different was I now like in order to protect myself, right. Is that I needed to be wearing my garments at all times, which is like the undershirts. People don't know. It's like a t-shirt and long biker shorts that you wear under all of your clothes. And it forces you to be modest because if your garments are showing, that means you are being immodest. So it's like a high neck, and then the the sleeves have been getting shorter and shorter and shorter as the years go on. But now it's like a, a cap sleeve, I think-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, it's basically like a full t-shirt and full biker shorts that you wear under everything. Closest thing to your body. Bra goes on top. You don't wear underwear. They are your underwear. Yeah. So 
that's what a garment is. Continue. Yes. <laughs> and we're meant to wear them like at all times besides shower and sex. Uh, other mm-hmm. than that, like when you work out all the time. Anyway, so that was like the most, I would say, the newish thing. But other than that, like now you're just meant to do everything you were already supposed to be doing now with somebody. So you're now meant to be reading scriptures together and having family prayer together and doing all of these things together. And you better believe that I was just, I was trying so hard to do all of the, and not even trying, like I was doing them. And I was, we were going to church every week and we were trying to go to the temple. I mean, we live in South Dakota. It's not like we have access to a thousand temples like Utah does or Arizona, but there were, we would, you know, make the three or four hour drive to the temple and do a session. Like it was, it was pretty intense and we were definitely adamant about making sure that it became a part of our lives. Um, and we had our first baby and that was very exciting. And she, you know, got her blessing inside of the church, which is essentially just, you know, they hold her up in the front of the church and give her a blessing that is inspired by God. And it's only men. So men can stand in the circle and, and be a part of this blessing. Um, if you're worthy. So yeah, if you're worthy. So like if dad's not worthy, he can't get up there and bless his own baby. Just had to point that out. Yes, I'm glad that you said that because yes, it's very true. So like if, yeah, if dad can't, then it would be like a grandpa or an uncle or maybe someone in the bishopric is now mm-hmm. blessing your child. So yeah, we did everything um, that a, you know, typical worthy or striving to be worthy Mormon couple would be doing. And um, I don't know, it was probably within about a year and a half of of deep back into the religion that I was like, I don't know, man, I've lived both <laughs> sides now. <laughs> like yeah. I've lived all growing up. So I knew it. I lived kind of that middle space where there was just anything goes. And then there was this again. And I was like, this isn't it. And I just like little tiny feelings where I would just be like, that's weird. Or this is off. Like this just, I don't know. And, and maybe it was just my particular marriage, but it was very much like a, a marriage triangle with us and his parents. Um, and because mm-hmm. he's a bishop, I think that that might have been a little bit of it is because, you know, the bishop is very much sought after for counsel because they are an esteemed leader and someone who can commune with God. So I think that, you know, my partner was using that a lot of like, well, my dad will know. And so Mm, there was a lot of that inside of our marriage, like, well, the bishop, you know, the bishop says, and it was just like, this is so uncomfortable. Um, And yeah, I, I didn't have the, um, I didn't understand how to like have tact when questioning things. So I was just like, all of this sounds crazy. I think I'm crazy. I don't know about any of this and just kind of blew up my life because I was like, okay, it's either this forever to the celestial kingdom and beyond. And I don't even know if I necessarily like believe it. I don't know. It just feels something just feels off to me. And it had never really felt off to me. I think that, and we kind of talked about this before, is that my tunnel vision had had become now, 
you know, this whole world of different views and opinions and religions and spiritual practices that I was like, whoa, there's so much out there. And what actually feels good to me? Like, I don't know if it's this. And I think that I needed that time. You know what? Maybe God did give them revelation that I needed to be disfellowshipped. I don't know. Cause I definitely needed <laughs> like a part. I needed to be away. I needed to experience all of these other things for me to then come back and be like, Hmm, I don't know if this is for me. And I, I do know, like I have some really close friends who are still in the church who they have never once felt like like questioning or they've never once felt like this isn't for them. They've always felt very comfortable and very, you know, they get a lot of good, happy things. And that just wasn't my experience. And so mm-hmm. I was basically like, this isn't it. And, you know, through that came divorce, which is also not looked at as a happy thing in, well, ever, you know, but especially in the Mormon religion, because you're now breaking that temple, that temple ceiling, which is huge. Like I wasn't just breaking mine and his, I was now breaking our daughter's potential of being sealed to us forever. I was now breaking, like I could now potentially be breaking my seal to like my mom. Like if she's going to go to the celestial kingdom, I'm now not sealed. Like there could be, you know, I don't really know exactly all of those rules. They sometimes shift, but I'm just like, it was big. It was a big, not just me, you know, saying, you know, our paper having us signing divorce papers. It wasn't that it was a lot of like, who does this affect everyone's family, our family, my, everyone's family, our daughter. And it was just this really, um, really big catastrophic thing. But you know what? I never once, I was sad about it, but I was never once like, is this the right decision? I always knew it was the right decision. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be sadness and, Mm -hmm. you know, grief and remorse that all came. But me leaving was never like a, was that wrong? Or was that the right decision? I always knew. I always knew. And once I made the decision and kept going, then it just kept, it was like confirmation over and over. Like, yep, yeah. for me, this is the best decision that I've ever made. And I think that I even shared with you that like our three-year-old went to church one day and came home in a different dress that covered her shoulders. And she was like, oh yeah, grandma said that I can't wear a dress like that. It's only for models. And I was like, now you're never oh, going. So it was like very, no. just like, you know, thing after thing. And now after being out, I mean, I I officially left when I was 25 and I'm 33 now. So it's been eight years. But I mean, like I had mentioned before, just because you step away from something doesn't necessarily mean that a story that you were told over and over and over as a child just leaves your brain. So yeah, those those beliefs of a, a ceiling in the temple or being in the celestial kingdom, like those aren't beliefs anymore. Those never pop up. But things like, you know dressing modestly, sometimes those will pop up like, oh, this shirt is a little low. If I wear this, I'm putting bad thoughts into everyone's head. Um, Those types of things will come in. But but for the most part, I've worked really, really hard to when a belief comes up to ask myself, is this truly my belief? Or was this just something that was told to me a million times by so many different people Mm -hmm. that it just kind of stayed in my brain. And that really helped on my deconditioning journey was really being able to ask myself, what do you believe, Chris? It's like making me emotional again, because 
I was never asked that. I was always just told what I believe. Like you believe Joseph Smith was a true prophet, right? You believe, and just uh-huh. all of these things, you believe that the Book of Mormon is real, right? And I just believed all of those things because they had just been told to me. Whereas now it feels really empowering to ask myself, is that really what you believe? Even as a parent, I will have some things come up and I have to be like, ooh, is that my belief? Or is that just how my mom parented me? Or is that just how, you know, I was taught in Sunday school? And some of those mm-hmm. things are a little bit wild because I'm like, whoa, I don't think that's actually my voice. I think that that's just, you know, a voice that's been in there for a really long time. Yeah. And look at you now. You're remarried. You're a little firecracker. I love it. <laughs> I could talk to you all day. <laughs> oh my Because you know what you want and you can recount everything so beautifully and express yourself so well. So you've clearly done the work and you've, I mean, you're thriving now, it seems. Like, it's just great to see someone who is thriving after leaving the religion because that's the number one thing they tell you is if you leave, where will you go? They've literally said Mm -hmm. this in general conference, the prophets of the church. If you leave, where will you go? You think you'll be happy, but that's not real happiness. And look at you. You are like the definition of happiness. (laughs) You're just like beaming over there. I'm just so happy for you and the life that you're living now. And I know we're almost out of time, but just tell us how you're doing. Oh my gosh. I really, like I mentioned, like I think that that was a catalyst in my life to be able to step away, you know, during that like 18 to 20 year old time. And in college, especially when there's so many different things going on and so many different people who've come from different areas of life and cultures and backgrounds, that it really opened my mind to oh, you can be happy in so many different ways. Like happiness looks different on everyone and what they're doing. And I think that that was essential for me later. I don't think I was ready before. Um, I I still think I needed to go through all of those other things. Um, But I think that that was a huge catalyst because then when I was ready, I knew I was like, okay, I've seen this. Like I've seen people live so big and so bright and so happy that have nothing to do with a religious background or a certain religion yeah. at least. Um, and so for me, it was really just like, what is next? Like that's, there's so much. It was a little scary because you're starting over with some of the beliefs you've always had. Right. And I think I shared like that was trickled into a lot of things. Like, the way I thought politically or about abortion or about marriage, about sex before marriage. There were so many word of wisdom. Like there were so many things that were just kind of a web of, of different ideas in my head. And so it did take a few years of me being like, Whoa, what do I believe? And what do I stand for? What are my values and what's important mm-hmm. to me? And even just like an, a spiritual practice, I was starting to, I think I, um, paired the word like spirituality with religion. So yeah. when I left the religion, I was like, want nothing to do with anything spiritual, which is not true. I'm a very spiritual person. And I was working with someone who was very, um, we were talking about chakras at the time and how your crown chakra is like your connection to the universe or God or whoever, right? Higher power, higher you. And she, and who knows, you know, take what you want, put it through your filter. But she was like, you know, your crown chakra is like 
dull. Like it looks like it's not that pretty purple color. And I was like, probably, I've probably cut it off because I don't want anything to do with spirituality. So I did a lot of work through figuring out like, what does spirituality look like to me? And what does like a Mm -hmm. practice that feels really good to me? And it has ebbed and flowed and it changes and it, you know, is really prominent at certain times in my life. And then I maybe back off a little bit. But I think that that was really like a fun thing for me is making it fun and exciting and new and not something that was like, you will do this every day. You will do this every Sunday for four hours and on Wednesday. (laughs) Like it just felt very nice to be able to make my own rules for once. And yeah, I, it's really interesting. The more that I, the longer that it's been that I'm away, the more that I'm like, I am more me than I have probably ever been. And um, Alicia Keys actually wrote a book and I think she even titled it that like more me or more myself or something like that. And she said the older she gets, the more that she's more her. And I feel that so deeply is that, you know, the, the older I get and the more time that I have on this earth, the more time that I'm doing the things that actually bring me joy, the more I'm like, wow. Like, this is you, Chris. Like, you were, you know, you've always been you. You've always been, like, I always looked like this. But the way that I felt on the inside was a little bit different. And so, yeah, I am. I'm like, I love that you said that. I am thriving. And I love to be able to have that. Because I think when I was in the church, I would look at that and be like, oh, if you're outside, you are just not quite as happy. And when bad things happen, you're being punished. Like God is, you know, teaching you a lesson. And anymore, I'm just like, I see so much happiness everywhere and with so many different people and so many different ways of living that as a mother, I mean, that's the only thing that I truly hope for for my children is that they're not living the way that I want them to live is that they're like living this big, beautiful life, however they want to live. And it's making them feel happy instead of me saying, this is how you live. And you'll only receive my love and approval if you're, you know, in these boundaries. But yeah, Mm -hmm. it's, it's definitely different. And I'm not going to say that I haven't been happy inside of the religion. Like maybe I was, you know, maybe I was really happy, but it all did feel very conditional and very like, I have to be happy, right? Like that's the goal. I need to be happy. Whereas now I'm like, it just comes like, it just comes naturally. And you know, when I'm doing the things that, that bring me joy the most. Yeah, that is such a good point. The happiness within Mormonism was very fleeting. It was like, okay, I'm happy, but how long am I going to be happy because I'm probably going to mess up and then I'm going <laughs> to screw everything up and I'm going to be worthless and all of that. And so right. it was kind of like an anxious happy, <laughs> like, yeah, everything's great for now <laughs> until <laughs> totally. something inevitably happens. It's probably going to be my fault. But everything you're describing is that individual sovereignty that we talk about. It's sure, find a practice that works for you that you are in control of, that you're not looking to someone else to say, how do I do this? Or how do I be worthy? Or how do I get to the highest level of heaven, the celestial kingdom, which I don't think exists. But, you know, how do I do X, Y, or Z? It's about figuring out what feels right to you and 
living by that because I think that's just so beautiful and grounding and real and honest and authentic to yourself. And it sounds like you're giving your kids that same option, which is amazing. And I'm so happy for you. So I need your Linda Listen moment, your sassy <laughs> statement. <laughs> so that would be what the toddler goes. You or inspiration. Is that when I say Linda, I almost have to do it in like the voice because it doesn't seem like <laughs> it's not Linda. Linda. <laughs> Linda. If you're go- <laughs> And I love that he was like doing this, but he's like a little sassy toddler. (laughs) Yeah. If your gut and your inner knowing feels like something is off or not right, listen, listen, Linda, listen, (laughs) because it never leads you astray ever, like ever. And all of us have different, different feelings, right? Different gut, guttural, whatever that guttural reactions, but it always, like if you feel something's a little bit off, listen to it. Pay attention, Linda. Amazing. <laughs> so good. I love it. This has been awesome. Like I said, we could talk all day. Um, no. Okay. So guys, if you want to find Chris, her Instagram, we'll put it in the description below, but it's Christiana underscore Hilberg and leave some of those comments for her down below. And do you have any final thoughts before we go? No, this was so fun. Like you said, I could talk about it forever and ever. So thank you for taking (laughs) time to chat. Yes, of course. It was awesome. Maybe we'll do a part two sometime where we could go live or something where people can ask you questions instead of just me. But (laughs) guys, thanks for listening. If you want to support the podcast, we actually just released a little holiday line. This is one of our sweaters, uh, Cult Free. And we have a few other fun Christmas options. You can find it at cultstoconsciousness.com under the merch tab. Uh, we did just release our, our C2C vacation. We're going to Costa Rica. We already have seven signups. We're so excited to hang out with you guys. If you want to be a part of that, you can find that in the description as well. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash cultstoconsciousness. Our newest patrons, Rebecca, Benjamin, Rachel, and Sienna, thank you so much for your support. It means so much that you're willing to do that monthly. And if you like this video, check out two that I will link here below. And until next time, follow your highest excitement, be conscious and be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with their visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts to Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts to Consciousness at gmail.com.